0: if we do not pray we will die just as surely as a man who does not breathe will die if we do not pray we as a church will die even if we manage to keep the doors open if we don't pray we will be just like the church in Sardis In Revelation chapter 3 verse 1, Jesus said to them, You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. We will not survive without the presence and power of God. And we will not experience the presence and power of God apart from much prayer. You see, if, if we don't pray, the most we will ever accomplish is what we can do in our own strength with our own resources. But if we will pray, if we will truly give ourselves to prayer, God will accomplish what only He can do in His strength with His resources. The Bible and the history of the church both confirm that all great works of God are preceded by prayer. The hand of God's power is moved by the prayers of God's people. That's how God's designed it. People whose prayers move the hand of God all have some things in common. There's some things that enable them to pray the way they do. There are some things that drive them to pray the way they do. And without those things in place, we will not pray the way we must pray if we truly want to experience the presence and power of God. So today i want to I want to talk about, what we need to pray as we should what are the things that need to be in place that will enable us and drive us to pray the way we really need to pray if we truly want to see god do a great work now i'm going to tell you from the outset This message is going to be different from my normal style of preaching. Normally I take a single passage of scripture and I focus on it. I explain it and try to apply it. Today I'm going to use several different scriptures. And what we're going to learn today is three things that we must have if we are going to pray the way we really need to pray. Those three things are this, discontent desperation and discipline i'll use a different scripture to illustrate each one in exodus 33 moses will serve as an example of discontent in second chronicles 20 jehoshaphat will serve as an example of desperation and in daniel chapter 6 daniel will serve as an example of discipline So here we go. What do we need if we're going to pray the way we should? First, we need discontent. Here we go back to the book of Exodus. By His mighty hand, God brought the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He rescued them from centuries of cruel bondage under the hand of the pharaohs. And after he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, he brought them to Mount Sinai. It's at Mount Sinai where they would hear his voice and they would receive the law which would teach them to live as his special people. When they got to Mount Sinai, Moses went up the mountain To meet God. God spoke with Moses there. And gave him the law. Exodus 31.12 it says. When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai. God gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone written by the finger of God. God gave Moses what we know as the ten commandments. The summary of the law that would regulate the life of God's people. Moses was on the mountain with God 40 days. Meanwhile, the Israelites decided something must have happened to Moses. The people saw that Moses was gone a long time and he never came down. So the people went to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said, Look, make us gods who can go before us. As for this Moses character, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron said, okay, take off your gold earrings, you and all your children, and and bring them to me. So they took off their gold earrings, they brought them to Aaron, and he made a, a golden calf out of all these golden pieces of jewelry. He fashioned it and told the people, okay, this is your God. Who led you out of Egypt? And they began to have a feast, worship, and celebrate. Of course, Moses has no idea what's going on down in the valley. He's up on the mountain with God. He was unaware, but God wasn't unaware. In Exodus 32, verse 7, Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go, go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I command them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are a stiff-necked people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. They're worshiping a golden calf, and God said, I'm just going to wipe them out and start over with you. Moses pleads with God. He intercedes for the people. Do not destroy the people. So God is merciful. And he doesn't destroy the people. Now I want you to look with me in Exodus 33. The first three verses. If you're using the Bible that's in the back of the pew in front of you. It's on page 93. Exodus 33. Look at verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses. Go. Go. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, To your seed I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you on the way. Now get the picture. God said to Moses, I'm going to do for the people just exactly what I said I would do. I'm going to give them the land that I swore. made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give the land. I'm going to give the land. I'm going to send an angel before them to drive out all their enemies. But I will not go with you. I'm not going to go in the middle of you. Stiff-necked, rebellious people. Now look at verse 15 of Exodus 33. Then Moses said to the Lord, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. God said, you rebellious, wicked people, I am not going to be with you. Moses said, well, if you're not going, I'm not going. We're not going to take another step if you don't go with us. Now think about this for a minute. God was still going to give them the land, He was still going to drive out their enemies. It was still a land flowing with milk and honey. They would have that just the way God promised. But yet Moses said, if you're not going with us, I'm not going. Well, why not? He's giving you everything he promised. Here's what Moses knew. Without the presence and power of God, all of that other stuff meant nothing. Moses knew it would be better to live in the desert with God than in the promised land without God. Let me say it another way Moses was unwilling to settle for the gifts, he wanted the giver. You understand? Moses said, look, we don't need the gifts. What we need is the giver. Moses said, I'm not going to be satisfied with anything less than the presence and the power of God. You know what you call that? That is holy discontent. This is not the discontent that is not satisfied with the lot in life God has given you. The Bible says when we have food and clothing, we should be content. That's That's... We're not talking about that kind of contentment. We're talking about a holy discontent that says, I will not be content with less than the blessing and power of God. I, I will not be content with God's gifts. I want God Himself. Oh, but here's our problem we're content. To sing our songs and say our prayers and preach our sermons and go home, even if there has been no real evidence that God has been in our midst. We're content. Even though the only thing that's been in that baptistry for months is dust and dead bugs. We're content, even though week after week, the altars in the house of God are destitute of the prayers and tears of God's people. God, forgive us for being content without his manifest presence and power. Listen, church, we need a holy discontent like Nehemiah. When Nehemiah heard about the deplorable condition of the city of God and the people of God, a a holy discontent stirred in him and drove him to his knees. He would not be content until the city of God and the people of God displayed the glory of God. That's the kind of holy discontent discontent we need here's here's why because until we have that kind of holy discontent we will not plead with god to send his presence and power and until we plead with god to send his presence and power we won't have it god give us a holy discontent That will drive us to pray and keep praying until the chains of sin are being broken and people's lives are being transformed. God, give us a holy discontent that will drive us to pray and keep praying until believers are visibly, noticeably growing in the grace and knowledge of God. God, give us a holy discontent that will drive us to pray and keep praying until these church grounds are alive with the sound of children and teenagers learning the gospel. God, give us a holy discontent that will drive us to pray and keep praying until the presence and power of God in and on this church make us a mighty force for the gospel and the glory of Jesus. If we're going to pray like we need to pray, we need discontent. But that's not all we need. We need desperation. Here we'll be in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 465. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is during the reign of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was one of the few kings who was a good king. The Bible says he was a godly king and he walked in the ways of his father David. Well, during Jehoshaphat's years as king, there was an alliance of three nations that came together to declare war against Jehoshaphat and the southern kingdom of Judah. 2 Chronicles 20, I want to read the first two verses. Now it happened after this, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Ammonites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek Yahweh and called for a fast throughout all Judah. We don't know exactly the size of the force that was coming against Judah, but we know it was three different nations and we know that Judah was vastly outnumbered. In verse 12, Jehoshaphat said, we are powerless against this great multitude. There was a force coming against them that they had no way to defeat. So what does Jehoshaphat do? Well, I just read it in verse 3. He set his face to seek Yahweh. To pray. Now look at verse 4. So Judah gathered together to seek help from Yahweh. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek Yahweh. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of Yahweh before the new court. And he said, O Yahweh, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can take their stand against you. Did you not, O our God, dispossess the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the seed of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And we will cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and save us. So now, behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. And behold, they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have caused us to possess. O God, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. And we do not know what we should do, but our eyes are on you. Did you catch that prayer in verse 12? We are powerless. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. We're powerless. We don't know what to do. We're looking to you, O oh God. This is a prayer driven by desperation. God, we are desperate. If you don't intervene, we will not survive. That's exactly what Jehoshaphat is saying to God. If you don't intervene, we will not survive we are powerless we're looking to you absolutely helpless so so often our problem is we don't realize how desperate we are we are absolutely helpless but somehow we don't see it. Even though Jesus said in John 15:5 apart from me you can do nothing. Our gifts, our talents, our resources, our knowledge, our skill, our education, our experience, all of that is useless without the presence and power of God. Only the power of God can save lost people. Only the power of God can transform believers so that we look more like His Son. Only the power of God can awaken the heart of sinners and draw them to Christ. Only the power of God can equip us and mobilize us to make a difference in this community. Only the power of God can do those things. Listen. Without the presence and power of God, we are helpless to do what God has placed us here to do. We're like a little boy pushing a lawnmower around the yard without the engine running. We can expend all the energy we want to, but we're not accomplishing anything. No power. But so often, we think, we just need a better strategy. We need a plan. We need better programs. Listen, no strategy can make up for the absence of God's presence. No program can accomplish the work of God apart from the power of God. We must have God. We can be guilty of thinking if we just had more workers, if we just had more resources. Listen, But no number of workers can advance the kingdom of God without the presence of God. No amount of resources can compensate for the absence of God's power. We must have God. We are desperate. If only we could see it. This church has no future without the direct intervention of God's presence and power. This church has no future unless God will intervene and send his presence and power. Listen. It is only when we realize how desperate we are that we will pray the way Jehoshaphat prayed. He knew how desperate he was and that's what drove him to pray the way he did. And in his prayer of desperation, God heard and God delivered his people. Listen, we have got to get to this place where we will say with all of our hearts, God, we are helpless. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. until we are desperate, we will not pray the way we need to pray. We'll say a prayer, but we won't pray. And there's a difference. Saying a prayer and really praying. God, we're helpless. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you all oh, that we can get to that place oh that God would give us discontent oh that God would give us desperation so we will truly pray and there's one more thing we must have if we're going to pray the way we should and it's discipline Daniel chapter 6 please turn with me to the book of Daniel If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 904. Daniel lived during the time of the exile when the people of Judah were captives for 70 years in Babylon. Daniel lived during those days. Daniel was a man of God and God gave him great favor and great influence with the kings of Babylon in Daniel chapter 6 Darius is the king and what's going on in this chapter King Darius selects 120 men and he places them over his kingdom and then he selects 3 men to be in charge of those 120 men Okay, so you might say he selects 120 men kind of to be like governors like a, you know like mayors of the different cities and then he selects 3 men to kind of be governors over those mayors kind of like that Well Daniel was one of those 3 that King Darius selected to be over the other 120 Well Daniel distinguished himself among all these others that the king selected because the Spirit of God was with him. In fact, the Bible says in Daniel 6 that King Darius planned to set Daniel over his whole kingdom. Kind of like Pharaoh did with Joseph back in Genesis. He's just going to put Daniel over the whole thing because he sees the blessing and power of God on Daniel. Well, when the other 122 officials that The king had chosen when they hear about him going to choose Daniel over them they are some kind of upset i mean this is a foreigner this is not even one of the babylons one of the chaldeans he's not even the medes or persians he's a foreigner and the king's going to put him over everybody else they didn't like it daniel 6 verse 4 says this then the commissioners and satraps began seeking to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to matters of the kingdom, but they were not able to find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it, against him with regard to the law of his God. Here's the problem. The men want to get Daniel in trouble. They want to get rid of him. But they know Daniel's devoted to his God above all else. They know he's faithful. They know he's not going to disobey the king. So they said, look, this Daniel is so devoted to his God, if we can just find a way to get him in trouble with the king through his religion, that's the only thing we're going to be able to do. So they come up with an idea. They said, we'll get the king to pass a law that says you can't pray to anybody except to the king for 30 days. And if you violate that law, you get thrown in a den of lions. Well, see, they knew Daniel was a man of God. They knew Daniel was going to pray to his God. So they knew if they could just get the king to pass this law, they would have Daniel. They could get him thrown in the lion's den. That would be the end of him. Believe it or not, the king actually took their advice and passed this law. Now look at verse 10. This is the verse I want us to focus on. Daniel 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the written document was signed, he entered his house now in, his house, uh, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel hears about the edict. If you pray to anybody but the king, you're going to be thrown in the den of lions. He does like he'd always done. He goes up to the room on his roof. He opens the chambers, the windows, and kneels facing Jerusalem. And three times a day, he prays and gives thanks to God. Now, there are a lot of lessons we could draw from that. But I want to focus on one thing in particular. Stopping to pray three times a day was an established habit in Daniel's life. You notice it said he stopped, continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. In other words, he didn't start this when the king passes edict. He had always done this. This was his habit. Daniel didn't pray just in times of crisis. He didn't just pray on the Lord's Day. Praying three times a day was just as natural and automatic for Daniel as eating three times a day is for many of us. Now, here's a question I want you to consider. How does that happen? How does someone become that devoted to prayer? There's more than one way to answer that question. But one answer we cannot possibly escape is this. Discipline. 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 Daniel disciplined himself by purposefully intentionally setting aside times for daily prayer three times every day it didn't happen by accident he purposefully intentionally set aside those times he maintained those times of prayer as his priority and he would not allow anything to interfere with those times of prayer not even a threat to his life would keep him from his times of prayer For Daniel, prayer was just as natural as breathing. But that didn't happen automatically. He didn't just wake up one day and he was a man of prayer. For Daniel, prayer begins the way it must for anyone else as a matter of discipline. I don't have to make a note to remind myself to brush my teeth in the morning. It's a habit. It's automatic. But it wasn't always that way. When I was a little boy, my mom brushed my teeth. When I got old enough, she taught me to brush my own teeth. And not only did she teach me to brush my teeth, she reminded me every day to do it and made sure I actually did. And she kept doing that until brushing my teeth was so ingrained in me that she didn't have to tell me anymore you could say it like this she disciplined me to brush my teeth i started out having to learn how to do it having to be reminded to do it having to be made to do it cuz somehow a little boy don't mind having nasty breath he just don't want to brush his teeth, but she made me. She, she made me do it, and she taught me to do it, and she kept enforcing that rule until it became a matter of habit and a matter that's just automatic. I don't have to think about it. Listen to me. Prayer can move the hand of God to do a great work at Society Hill, but that kind of prayer will require discipline discipline that means we have to purposefully intentionally set aside specific times to pray for our church and we must guard those times not allowing anything to interfere with them we must pray even when we don't feel like it we must pray Even when there are a million other things clamoring for our attention. We must pray even when God seems a million miles away and you don't think your prayers are rising above the ceiling. We must pray on days when prayer comes easy and we must pray on days when it's hard like pulling teeth. We must dispense With any and all excuses that would keep us from prayer. And you've got your excuses, and so do I. If we're going to see God do a work here, we gotta lose the excuses why we don't pray. I'm just not sure what to say. Well, learn. I get distracted. My mind wanders. When you lose focus, refocus right listen if you're driving down the highway and you kind of lose focus and you drift off the shoulder of the road what's the first thing you do you get back in the road so, why, when you're praying and your mind starts to wonder, do you just decide, well, I'm just going to run off in the ditch and hit this tree? No. Everybody gets distracted sometimes. Listen, you can come up with a million excuses why you don't pray, but I'm going to tell you why you don't pray because you don't want to pray. But listen, we've got to discipline ourselves. Listen, can I tell you this? Prayer can be a delight, but before it's a delight, it's a duty. It won't become a delight until it becomes a discipline. When you discipline yourself to pray, there will come a time when that duty becomes a delight. But you have to start with discipline. Oh, listen to me, church. To pray as we should, to pray as we must. If we want to see God do a great work. We must have discontent. We must have desperation. We must have discipline. So the first thing we must do. Is pray that God would give us those things. God. Make us discontent. So we will pray. God, make us desperate so we will pray. God, make us disciplined so we will pray. And we have to take advantage of the opportunities that are provided to pray for this church. And I'm fixing to give you four. Some of them we're doing already. Two of them we're going to start Sunday mornings at 9:15. every Sunday, we gather back here to pray for the church in this room right behind here. So that's 9:15, that's early. Well, you went to work at seven, eight o'clock for years. Don't tell me 9:15's early. Listen, I've worked four hours by 9:15 every day. We gather at 9:15 every Sunday. Sunday evenings, Immediately before the sermon, we're going to begin having a time devoted specifically to prayer for the church. We're going to come and gather in this altar and pray for this church Sunday evening just before the sermon. Now I won't be here tonight. Brother Mark MacArthur is going to be preaching. I'll be on the road to Oklahoma. But as soon as I get back, and you're welcome to do that tonight, but I won't be here. But we're going to begin doing it on Sunday night, Wednesday evening prayer meeting. If you haven't been on Wednesday evening lately, you'll notice we haven't been doing any Bible study at all. We just pray. We pray for the church. Amen. We spend the whole time, about 40, 40, 45 minutes praying for the church, praying for each other, praying through, our, through the names on the prayer list. And here's another one I'm going to begin doing, and I want to invite you to join me. I can't start tomorrow because I'm going to be gone, but as soon as I get home... I'm going to prayer walk around this church at six o'clock every day for about probably about 15 minutes. I'm going to come up here every day at six o'clock and walk around this sanctuary and pray specifically for this church. I'd, I'd love you to come join me. Now I'm going to be in my pajamas and my slippers and my hair is going to be a mess. And there's some days that I won't show up. I may have something going on. If I don't show up, you pray without me. If it rains, I'll come inside and pray. But I've determined. God spoke to me last Monday night about this. I'm going to begin praying every day. I'm going to come up here and walk around this place and beg God to do what we can't do. And I want to invite you to join me. Can I tell you something, church? There's no limit. There is no limit to what God can do in and through this church if we'll give ourselves to prayer. I'm telling you, you, you got no idea. You can't even imagine what God could do if we'd really get serious about praying. Ask, seek, knock. He can save lost friends, lost family, lost neighbors. He can heal and restore marriages. He can deliver people from their addictions. He can fill these pews with people who desire to know and worship Him. Listen, God can do great and marvelous things if we will only pray. So God, make us discontent so we will pray. God, make us desperate so we will pray. God, make us disciplined so we will pray. Bow your heads.